Welcome to Monmouth Community Christian Church. It's such a joy to join with you today to worship our, our Lord together with you. And I'm having some computer problems up here. Um, we're in the middle of, of a sermon series on the logic of authenticity. And we're focusing on this logic of authenticity all year. And we're we're finding that Jesus defines for us what authenticity is in his parable in Luke 18 of, of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And you'll remember that, that in this parable, let's see if I can find my sermon. Um, in this parable, uh, the tax collector is so struck by his sin, he's so overwhelmed by his unworthiness that he doesn't even dare to lift his eyes to heaven, but he simply prays, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I think I found my sermon. Um, and, and he models for us this, this authenticity that's honest that's real before God, that admits the true condition of our lives and goes to God for help. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this, as we live into this authenticity, we, like him, cry out to God, asking for mercy and grace that none of us deserve, that none of us could ever earn through the things we do. The opposite of authenticity, the authenticity that pleases God is the sin, the ugly sin of hypocrisy. And Jesus holds up the Pharisee in Luke 18 as a model for that. This Pharisee believed that he's right with God because of all that he's done for God. He thinks he's earning God's favor and blessing because of all the good works he's done on the surface level of his life. And then he looks around and he sees, wow, I've done so many more good works than other people, therefore God is more pleased with me than them. He thinks he's better than other people. He thinks he's right with God because of all he's done for God. But none of us can climb up to God on a ladder of good works. And more than that, the Pharisee's confidence in his own good works blinds him. Remember, his good works are like on the surface layer of his life, and they prevent him from looking deeper to his own heart, seeing the ugliness of his pride and sin that's infected his heart. And so God has mercy on the tax collector who repents of his obvious sins that everyone sees. But God does not have mercy on the Pharisee who has these hidden sins of pride, this deep ugliness, but he looks so good on the surface. And so throughout my sermons, we're allowing Romans 8 to guide us deeper into this logic of authenticity, and it's leading us deeper into the heart of the gospel, Romans chapter 8. And right in the middle of Paul's discussion in Romans 8 of the salvation that Jesus freely offers us, that, that sets us free from all condemnation. And right in the middle of Paul's teaching about life in the Spirit through whom we put to death the misdeeds of our body. And right in the middle of Paul's discussion of this unimaginably high status we have as the adopted children of the King. And right after his encouragement that our present sufferings cannot even compare with the weight of the glory. Remember that weight of the glory that will be revealed 
in us. Right in the middle of all of this, Paul suddenly shifts abruptly. And he begins speaking about the rest of the created world beyond humanity. It's so strange. It's as though Paul is telling us God's story is bigger than just the human story. Yes, we each are deeply loved by God. And yes, Jesus gives his life on the cross to bring humanity back into a healed relationship with God. But Paul also teaches us in Romans 8 that God's concern extends beyond humanity. And it reaches even to the rest of the created order. It's not all about us. It's not all about us. We're unimaginably loved by God, but we're not all that God loves. And this fact pushes us deeper into the humility of authenticity modeled by the tax collector. So let's look at our passage for today from Romans chapter 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory, the weight of glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Today we're going to allow Paul's words about creation in Romans 8 and other key passages of Scripture to help us understand a biblical view of the physical creation which will then enable us to more clearly see how the good news of Jesus Christ has implications for the rest of creation beyond humanity. And so today we're going to look at the goodness, the brokenness, and the destiny of the created world. The goodness, the brokenness, and the destiny of creation. So let's begin with creation's goodness. In Genesis chapter 1, which describes God's act of creating the physical universe, seven times we read that what God had made is good. The final verse of this chapter emphasizes this fact by by really just uh, doubling down on the fact that creation is so good. After God had made everything, we read what he thought of it, and it says this, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
God created the world, God created the universe to be very good, to be full of goodness, to have nothing in it that clashes with God's character. And God delighted in the wonder and the beauty of the creation he had made. If there were no other reason in all of Scripture, and there are many other reasons, but if there were no other reasons, this would be enough for us to know that we need to treat, we need to treat the created world around us with care and respect, for it continually reveals the thoughtfulness and the design of our Creator. God made all things, and He declares His creation to be very very good. Now at this point, I'd like to just briefly mention one important theological implication of this that directly relates to our lives. The fact that God created the universe as good means that God is not the origin of evil, okay? We're going just a little, we're just going slightly deep today for a moment. Hang with me. Here, evil, in, in how I'm using it, is simply another word for sin, especially sin that's undeniably destructive. And so, in philosophical debates, people wrestle with evil, and, and evil here refers to sins that are undeniably destructive. When God created the universe and all things, God did not create evil. And therefore, God is not the source of evil. God did, however, create a world in which human free will exists, and we as creatures could freely choose to love him and follow him and obey him, or we could freely choose to reject God. And this free will, when we reject God, it opens up the possibility of us introducing evil into creation when we reject God. God does not introduce evil into creation. We do by choosing to reject him and his ways, by breaking a relationship with him, and then by living in ways that defy and oppose God's goodness. This is the tragedy of Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at the last time I spoke, when humans turn their back on God. One of the consequences of God uh, one of the consequences of humans rejecting God and introducing evil into God's good creation is that God curses the ground as we saw. And so creation itself, the created world, suffers because of humanity's rejection of God. Now I'd like to bring this to the practical level. What does this mean for us on a day-to-day -day practical level in our daily lives? The goodness of the original creation has deep implications for how we understand sin. Especially, it teaches us that sin is empty. Okay? Hang with me. The fact that God created the universe to be good means that there is no part of creation that is evil in and of itself, and so we should not think of evil as an extra ingredient added to the recipe of creation. No, that's not right. 
Rather, Thomas Aquinas taught us the correct biblical way to understand evil. Thomas Aquinas wrote that evil is always the privation of good. Evil is the absence of good. Evil is the absence of the good that God intends for creation. This means that evil always takes away from God's creation. It never adds anything of substance. Evil is an absence. Evil involves making God's good creation less than it was meant to be. Evil is a twisting of creation, making it less than its original intended purpose. Let me give you an example. The first motorcycle I ever owned was a 1970 Harley-Davidson Sportster. It, this is not the one, but it was just like this, except my paint job was much, much nicer. It had been repainted right before I bought it. And the new paint job was very special. It was emerald green pearl. And it had this depth to it where it's like you were looking, you're looking into the surface of the paint and there were like these flecks of spark, sparkle. It was just amazing. It was like a beautiful, beautiful paint job. I then put the motorcycle on the back of a trailer and I was pulling it from Minneapolis to Los Angeles where I was living at that time. And the, the, the trailer... Uh, that the motorcycle was on was covered with a tarp. But what happened as I drove down the interstate is that the tarp tore. And then the tarp wrapped itself around the license plate on the back of my motorcycle. And then the wind and the tarp tore my license plate off. I mean, I could not invent this. This is unbelievable. And then that license plate wrapped up in the tarp started banging in the wind against the, the rear fender, gashing into the beautiful emerald green pearl paint of that rear fender of my very first motorcycle. It's unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. When I stopped at the next stop, I just couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> I looked at deep gashes in the perfect paint that was just, it was just ruined. This is a picture of what it means to say that sin is the privation of good, that sin is an absence. Sin takes away from God's good creation. Sin gouges out the goodness that God placed there originally. Nothing had been added to my motorcycle. The paint was ruined because the original perfect emerald green pearl paint was taken away by the deep gouges. Evil causes an absence in God's good creation. Evil gouges out the original goodness of creation. And the practical warning for us today is this. Evil, even when it takes the form of seemingly insignificant sins, always promises to add something to our lives. It, it, sin promises to add something that's missing. You'll, you'll have a richer life with this sin. You'll have a fuller life if you add this sin to your life, sin promises to add something that we're missing, but the reality is that evil is always an absence of what is good. The evil of sin takes away from our lives. The evil of sin makes us less than we were before. 
In this way, the temptation to break God's law is always like a cup of ocean salt water offered to a dehydrated person. That, that cup of water looks like it's going to help them. But if they drink that cup of ocean salt water, the dehydrated person's condition will just be far worse than before. Sin is the privation of the good. Sin is the absence of God's original goodness in his creation. Romans chapter 8 provides another striking image of the brokenness of creation. Paul writes that creation groans because of the brokenness and decay caused by human sin. Last time we focused on creation's eager expectation, which is like a child on a road trip on their first time to Disneyland, and they can't wait. It's just torture to sit in that car. They're so full of eager expectation to get to Disneyland for the first time. They can barely take it. That's how strong the Greek word is that Paul uses when he says, when he says, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Last time I spoke, we also noted that, that creation's frustration mentioned by Paul in verse 20 is, ex is also expressed by a very strong Greek word that refers to emptiness, futility, purpose, purposelessness, transitoriness. The credit world can sense that its original purpose has been taken from it, that it's not now fully what God intended it to be. The credit world can now sense meaninglessness and futility that it was meant to be so much more than it is now. And so Paul says creation groans as it suffers the effects of human sin. Paul writes, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The Greek word translated here as groaning is very interesting because it refers to lamenting together in a community. And so it refers, it refers to these sounds of suffering that, that people in distress make, like these cries, these, these sighs, these groans. And Paul is poetically then applying this to creation and saying that the created world around us, it's like it's, creation is joining together as a community of the credit order, and together creation is grieving the brokenness caused by human sin, and, and creation is groaning, sighing. It's like, oh, oh, it's just so difficult for creation. Just this sigh, oh, I can't believe it. Look at the gouges in the paint. Look at the gouges in the beautiful creation. Oh. George Whitfield, the great revival preacher in the 1700s, who is a friend of John and Charles Wesley, describes this groaning of creation in a very unique way. He says this, I have, I have often thought when I was abroad that if there were no other argument to prove original sin, the rising of wolves and tigers against man, nay, the barking of a dog against us 
is proof of original sin. When the creatures rise up against us, it is as much as to say, you have sinned against God, and we take up our master's quarrel. You have sinned against God, and we take up our master's quarrel. In the community where Bonnie and I live, there's a dog that's been very poorly trained. And whenever anyone walks by this dog, it just starts barking aggressively. In fact, even when the dog is inside of its apartment, and you just walk by the apartment, their apartment's on the first floor, you walk by the apartment, all of a sudden you hear these loud forepaws slam against their sliding glass door, and you hear these loud barks coming from inside their apartment. Whitfield is saying that the hostility that animals often have toward humans, evident even in the barking of a dog against us, is proof of humanity's sin. Proof that we've broken creation and even the animals know it. The animals are telling us, you've sinned against God and we take up our master's quarrel. This is the brokenness of creation the brokenness caused by human sin, that the natural world around us experiences and and can feel, and it causes creation to groan in its suffering and to long for something better. The better condition that creation groans for, the better destiny, that creation longs for with this eager, barely containable anticipation, like a child on the way to Disneyland for the first time, is described by Paul as liberation from its bondage to decay and as being brought into the freedom and glory, the weight of the glory of the children of God. Now, God only gives us hints of this, in scripture, but we see through these hints a renewal. We see a recreation of the natural world. John, toward the end of Revelation, describes this renewal as a radical new beginning. He says it this way, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So often we emphasize the radically new and transformed existence that will be given when Jesus returns, when Jesus fully establishes his kingdom on earth, when Jesus brings all who trust in him into newness of life. We focus on ourselves. We'll be so radically changed in that moment that Paul says we'll be given new bodies, which will be like Jesus' resurrection body. In Philippians 3.21, we read, Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Yet we sometimes forget that creation itself, the physical universe around us and beyond us will also be transformed so radically that it will be as though creation itself will be given a new body, a resurrection body, a new start. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, this doesn't mean we can cra- we, that we can trash this world and just mistreat it. No, we as humans were given the responsibility to care for and to cultivate creation. And God will hold us accountable for how well or how poorly we do so. This does mean, though, that there's a new day coming. There's a new day, and it's not just for humanity. It's for all of creation. This means that Jesus' resurrection from the dead not only opens the doors for all who believe to enter the eternal life of God, it also opens the door for all creation to enter into the newness of God's life, which is eternal life without sin or death or decay. In closing today, I'd like to just mention three things about this restored creation when it's finally someday brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. First, in a number of his writings, C.S. Lewis presents an argument in favor of the immortality of pets. Now, Scripture doesn't directly say anything about this topic, but Lewis argues, based upon what Scripture does tell us about God and about the eternal life that God will someday give his people, Lewis argues this, that those animals whom God's people love during their time on earth may become part of the immortality of the person who loves them. So through the pet's connection to people who will spend eternity in God's presence, beloved pets may, we don't know, but may also be brought into the eternal life of God through Jesus Christ. Now I have to emphasize we don't know this for sure, but I like this. It's a speculation. It's an imaginative interpretation uh, going beyond what Scripture says, but in consistency with Scripture Uh, which C.S. Lewis shares. Second, one thing we do know for sure is that there's already a song of praise lifted up to our God by all creation around us, which sin prevents us from fully hearing and fully understanding. But someday, there's going to be a day when we will experience with full clarity And when we'll enter into fully and completely this song of praise that the galaxies are lifting up to our creator. David describes this scene. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Creation itself is praising God right now, filling the universe with joyful worship of our good creator. But sin blocks us as humans from hearing this joyful praise, Because of sin, it's like each of us is a broken radio 
There are radio waves all around us. There's the, the, the song of praise of the universe all around us, but we're broken radios because of sin. We can't pick up the radio signal. We can't tap into it. We miss it. Sin blocks us. But that won't always be the case. C.S. Lewis describes the song of praise that fills the universe in his space trilogy, which imaginatively describes our solar system as a place filled with other life forms that have not rebelled against God, but that live as they were created to be. Again, this is a work of fiction. It's imaginative. I'm not saying this is true. This is before, he wrote this before anyone went to the moon, when, when you know, space travel didn't even exist. But in his first book, called Out of the Silent Planet, a human named Alwyn Ransom is kidnapped and taken aboard a spacecraft that flies to Mars. There, Ransom escapes from his human captors and finds a planet filled with several different intelligent life forms. He eventually discovers that the inhabitants of Mars call Earth the Silent Planet. The Silent Planet. Because in a solar system filled with life, in which various higher life forms communicate with one another, travel among planets, and live under the guidance and direction of God, our planet is the only planet that's silent. Our planet is the only one that's at war against the Creator. And so our planet is the only one that's been cut off from the fullness of life that connects the other planets, and we're cut off from this song of praise that fills the universe. And Lewis describes this unceasing song of praise beyond our silent planet, lifted up by creation to the creator as the great dance. I like it. The great dance of the universe. And this great dance, this unceasing song of praise, lifted to God by the universe he created, is centered in and focused upon what Jesus Christ has done for our salvation, for the renewal of the universe. There's an angelic being in Lewis's book, Paralandra, that says, all which is not itself the great dance was made in order that he might come down into it in the fallen world, that's us, that's earth, in the fallen world, he prepared for himself a body and was united with the dust and made it glorious forever. This is the end and final cause of all creating and the sin whereby it came is called fortunate and the world where this was enacted is the center of worlds, blessed be he, end quote. Someday, our worship of the Creator will join this song that's being raised by the galaxies, this song of praise lifted to our Creator when, when we and all of creation will finally enter into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Third and finally, in closing, I'd just like to say that we see in Revelation what, that what we call nature is fully integrated into the spiritual and physical reality of the new Jerusalem. There will be a seamlessness, a harmony between humanity and nature in God's presence that we currently do not experience. 
You see, humanity's sin caused a schism and a break, not only in our relationship with God, but also in humanity's relationship with nature around us. But someday, this broken relationship will be healed. And we see this in Revelation when there's a new Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there will be a river of life and a tree of life that brings healing and harmony to all things. And so today, let's close with this vision that John saw. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Creation means far more to God than we usually realize. And it has a place in the overarching story of our redemption in Jesus Christ. This fact humbles us because it teaches us that it's not all about us. And this calls us to extend care and attention to God's creation around us. And finally, this gives us reason to rejoice for the miracle that God is accomplishing through Jesus' death and resurrection is so much greater than we can currently imagine. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you so much that your love extends far further than our little minds can imagine. We thank you so much for redeeming us in Jesus Christ. And we pray today that you'd allow the teaching of Romans chapter 8 and the teaching of Scripture about creation to sink into us so that we will know that, that, that creation is part of the story, that it's not just about us, that, that there's so much more to it, and that we would act as children of the King who are given stewardship over creation, that we would please you in how we treat the world around us. We pray this in your name. Amen.